about revolution, they must speak about a change because we are human beings and we got to be treated like human beings. We are men. We are not beasts and we do not intend to be beaten or driven as such. If you put people under these kind of conditions, they're going to rebel, you know, and that's what Attica teaches you. What has happened here is but the sound before the fury of those who are oppressed. This September marks the 30th anniversary of the historic Attica State Prison Rebellion and Massacre. The story of Attica is one of the most heroic and brutal chapters in U.S. history. After a five-day occupation, 43 people were killed, 150 were shot, and 1,289 tortured. As one of the slogans of that time put it, Attica is all of us. On this 30th anniversary, with more than 2 million people now imprisoned in the United States, the true story of Attica, now more than ever, needs to be told. On this program, you will hear the voices of prisoners, including L.D. Barkley, a prison leader who proclaimed the Attica Manifesto to the world and was killed during the massacre. You'll also hear Frank Big Black Smith, who survived the massacre and describes the torture that took place in its aftermath. You'll also hear other prisoners and guards taken hostage during the five-day occupation, as well as Elizabeth Fink and Michael Deutsch, two attorneys among many who defended prisoners charged with the rebellion, gained acquittals and clemencies, then brought and eventually settled damage suits on behalf of the prisoners. Like all mass rebellions, the Attica Rebellion was preceded by a long chain of abuses, years of petition and protest to improve conditions, years of false promises of reform by the prison administration. We felt that the people should come together and get a better understanding of the conditions here, what was being did to them by the administration. So behind this, we would hold meetings in the yard. You know, we'd hold open house and whoever wanted to come to listen to uh, our political ideology, they were welcome. We didn't bar anyone. This was frowned on by the institution and uh, they would break it up. In order to reach everyone, we had to get along with different factions here, uh, Muslims and five percenters and all the other factions to become one solid movement. We start talking about a strike. They made a lot of promises about the conditions would be better, uh, the food would get better, and, uh, medical conditions would be better. It was a lot of promises. So everyone laid, they waited, you know, and nothing was did. This is when the uh, Attica Liberation Faction began. We wanted to do things diplomatically, you know, we, we were seeking uh, reform, although many were not in favor of reform because uh, they didn't believe that the people would listen. So we sought support from the entire population. People were not interested in waiting for change, they wanted to make change. Attorney Elizabeth Fink. The prisoners themselves had gone through a number of different routes to try and change the barbaric conditions that were at Attica. The fact that they were forced to work in the metal shop at 107, 108 degrees for 56 cents a day. The fact that most people were Muslims and the major meat that was given was pork. There was no educational programs. There were no third world guards. There was no uh, representation in any kind of parole hearings. There was just nothing. 
and the situation in in the New York State prisons, as in every other prison in every other state, was deeply racist. All the guards were white, and the vast majority of the prisoners were third world. And up until about 1969, at Attica, for example, everybody stays in their block. They eat with their block, they work with their block, and they wreck with their block. And there's only one day a year where you open up the prison, and that was the 4th of July. And they had this institution called Black Ice and White Ice. They'd bring out this ice, and it was white ice, and only the white people could use it. And then they'd bring out this other ice, and it was black ice. That was only the black people. And this lasted until, like, 69. In the months preceding September 9, 1971, prisoners had written a manifesto protesting conditions and listing grievances. There had been no response from the administration. Then, on August 21, 1971, prison movement leader and writer George Jackson was shot down at San Quentin Prison in California. We hear from Attica prisoners about the response to that assassination. Things were getting worse. What really solidified things was George Jackson's death. This had a reaction on the people that we were trying to accomplish all along to bring them together. We thought of, well, how could we pay tribute to George Jackson because a lot of us idolized him, the things that he was doing, the things he was exposing about the system. So we decided that we would uh, have a silent fast that whole day in honor of him. We would wear black armbands. No one was to eat anything that whole day. Uh, We noted that if the people could come together for this, then they could come together for other things. I didn't know anything about, you know, George Jackson. What George Jackson? So we were going to child that morning, and when we got in the mess, so everything was quiet. Nobody saying nothing. And you're talking about five, six, seven hundred people, inmates. Nobody was eating. So I asked one of my buddies, Carlos, I said, what's up, man? He said, shh, be cool, right? So I didn't tell you, man. This dude, George Jackson, California killing, and, and uh, man, that's so kind of solid there. Ain't nobody eating. But then I it went away. I didn't eat. We sat down, but it was, woo. And so they saw the effect of that mass action, joint action, on the administration and the guards, which was total terror. And I believe that it empowered them. It was a seemingly small, repressive incident against a black and white prisoner that triggered the occupation itself. The tensions of the past years and months erupted into a rebellion by prisoners from four cell blocks and the occupation of D-Yard, by over 1,500 prisoners. Black, Puerto Rican, Native American, and white prisoners joined together over five days, proclaiming demands, caring for guards held hostage, and naming a number of prominent progressive activists, lawyers, and journalists as intermediaries as negotiations began. L.D. Barkley read their manifesto. The entire incident that has erupted here at Attica is not a result of the dastardly bushwhacking of the two prisoners September 8th of 1971, but of the unmitigated oppression wrought by the racist administrative network of this prison throughout the year. We are men. We are not beasts and we do not intend to be beaten or driven as such. The entire prison populace, that means each and every one of us here, have set forth to change forever the ruthless brutalization and disregard for the lives of the prisoners here and throughout the United States. What has happened here is but the sound of or the fury of those who are oppressed. 
We will not compromise on any terms except those terms that are agreeable to us. We call upon all the conscientious citizens of America to assist us in putting an end to this situation that threatens the lives of not only us, but of each and every one of you. We have set forth demands that will bring us closer to the reality of the demise of these prison institutions that serve no useful purpose to the people of America, but to those who would enslave and exploit the people of America. The manifesto's been gone out three, four months, and nothing has happened. And uh, as I say, the conditions, they, they just got worse, man. these prisoners in front of the whole world organized a structure where they had elections in the blocks and people who represented them and a conglomeration of white people and black people and brown people, all of whom were empowered. And everybody got to watch that over the five days and it was really intense. Our demands are such. We want complete amnesty, meaning freedom from all and any physical, mental, and legal reprisals. We want now speedy and safe transportation out of confinement to a non-imperialistic country. We demand that, federal, that the federal government intervene so that we will be under direct federal jurisdiction. We want the governor and the judiciary to guarantee that there will be no reprisals. And we want all facets of the media to articulate this. We guarantee the safe passage of all people to and from this institution. We invite all the people to come here and witness this degradation so that they can better know how to bring this degradation to an end. This is what we want. During the occupation, interviews were conducted with prisoners and with guards held hostage. These people in here are treated like dogs. Not only the black, the Puerto Rican, the black, and the white. And I want everyone to know that we're going to stick together, we're going to get what we want, or we're going to die here. All of My name is Johnny Delgado. I'm a Puerto Rican, and I'm proud to be a Puerto Rican. And I've always been proud to be a Puerto Rican. Now, I'm going to lay it on you the way it is. These people here are trying to kill us. All these dogs up there with all those rifles are trying to kill us. But we ain't going to quit. You know, we're not, why no, we're not going to quit? Because we're one. We're one unit. We're tired of being beaten. We're tired of being oppressed. We're going to get this if we all have to die. All of us. What is your name, please? Frank Straw. What is your, what, what is your job? Correction officer. Now, we want to know exactly what do you think of the way you're treated in here by these men. We all have been treated 100% been fed well, gave us blankets, slept on mattresses while they slept on the ground. Medication was given to us while they didn't get any. They took care of us first. We've been taken care of at least 100%. How do you think these men should be treated henceforth? I think they should be treated 150%. I know they have grievances. I know because I work with them. They've got grievances. I know these grievances. We have to tell those people out there about them. We all wish we could be home. By we, I don't mean 38 of us. I mean all of us. All 1,538 of us. To the oppressed people all over the world, we have the solution. The solution is unity. I'd like to speak to the brothers in Buffalo. And I want you brothers to get together because we're together here. 
And we, these people think we shucking and jiving, but we is for real. We are as serious as cancer. We are for real. Noted radical attorney William Kunstler, one of the intermediaries named by the prisoners, was interviewed just outside Attica State Prison on September 13, 1971. His words proved prophetic. The commissioner told us last night that he was going through his own ordeal and that he had not made up his mind what to do. We implore him as we implore him now to have no force in there. They want to continue to talk. If they go in there, it's going to be a massacre in this prison, and it's on the heads of the authorities if it takes place. And I have nothing but the greatest of sympathy both for the guards and for the inmates inside. Time can produce something here, but a loss of time and a show of force will produce only death and misery, not only here, but I'm sure we'll have a reaction in black ghettos and other areas throughout the country. Well, is Governor Rockefeller going to come here? Will he consider doing that? Do you think he should come here? He should come. His refusal to come here is a monstrosity because what he is saying is kill these men. I have no concern. All I want to do is restore law and order. And I think that's a, a rotten exchange for lives. What if the observation helicopters is take it off? And with it, now for the first time, one of the large army helicopters is taken off. It is known that uh, the army helicopters are loaded with, uh, with what is called riot gas, though we're not quite sure what kind of gas it is. Anyway, here, uh, here come the helicopters, and they, uh, they are now heading for the prison. One of the large army helicopters now going overhead and over the wall into the prison. Any idea what's going uh, what's going on behind this cover of gas? I think we're about to witness a massacre. We just tried a man from Milai and convicted him, and now Milai number two is taking place. That is an absolute act of bestiality on the part of this man who calls himself an elected official of this state. I hope that the black people of America and the Puerto Rican people of America remember this day. The helicopter came and dropped the CS gas, and at the exact moment that that gas was dropped, they started to shoot. Exactly at that moment, and they cleared the catwalks. They just murdered everybody on the catwalk. It was a slaughter line, man. It was, uh, people were, were defenseless. All right, they, they had sticks. Uh, homemade weapons to defend themselves, but this doesn't compare, man, with with magnums and carbines. But this is ridiculous, you know. The next thing I know is this big helicopter flying over us, and uh, tear gas is coming from everywhere. It's a whole lot of shooting carrying on. So naturally, everyone is running for cover, you know. So I'm next to the wall, and I know around me that everyone is. Hiding their face and guys spitting rags and putting it to their nose. But what I know was troopers start coming from everywhere. Then I start seeing different people fall. You know, they were they were shot. Guys was losing their hand, shot in the head, and the neck. The power structure, led by Nelson Rockefeller, attorney Elizabeth Fink wanted to show to the world and certainly to the rebellious forces within his own country with the advice and consent and affirmation of Richard Nixon what the price is for rebellion 
And so they created this assault force, which was there to murder everybody. There were 4,500 rounds of ammunition fired on a cage of people, and there were 1,289 people in it. They used high-powered rifles with dum-dum bullets that entered and exploded on impact, and they used shotguns with 8 to 12 36 caliber bullets with an indiscriminate 50-yard spread. And the reason why they did all that is because they wanted to kill a lot of people. Attorney Michael Deutsch. The state came in with an incredible amount of firepower. The prisoners were essentially unarmed, only had makeshift weapons. After they shot people down, people who were surrendering with their hands in their head, who were lying prone on the ground were shot. People who were running away were shot in the back. They then proceeded to strip everybody and send them through lines of swinging guards with clubs. They had officers lying up all in the hall everywhere, you know, you were scared to death because you were stripped naked, you know, all you seen and heard was a lot of uh, uh, nasty words calling you all kinds of niggas, you know. They call them the black niggas, they call them the white niggas, they call them the Puerto Rican niggas and so forth, you know. And uh, took the leaders who they believe were the leaders of the negotiations and put X's on their back. When I was playing war, they put an X on my back. We uh, theorized that this was intentionally done, man, to, uh, to exterminate us. You know, the state trooper said that if we moved, we were, dead, we were dead people, you know, dead men. Literally tortured many of them and put them in cells nude, um, some with bullet wounds still in them. Many didn't get medical care. Many died from bleeding to death because they didn't get proper medical care, even though they knew prior to the time of the of the assault that they were going to come in that way they only provided ambulances for the hostages they had one ambulance for each hostage and no ambulances for the wounded prisoners they would line up on two sides as you would come down they would hit you with the sticks and the guns you know spit at you if you fall down four of them would come on top of you and start beating you with the back of the rifle butts you know once you got in the cell they take you out of the cell they give you a beat throw you back in the cell uh... they wouldn't feed you when they did feed you they put their hands in the food, spin food, stuff like that, right in front of you, you know. Uh, they'd come down and wake you up every few minutes for harassment, shake on the bars, get up, get up, you know. They wouldn't let you sleep. This went on for days. Left the windows open. No clothes. No shoes. The mass murder that took place on the 13th of September. Cold-blooded, premeditated murder Attica brother, Frank Big Black Smith. I am telling you what I seen with my own eyes. I speak of my dead brother, L.D. Barkley. I know for a fact that he was premeditatedly murdered. I know this. We are men. We are not beasts and we do not intend to be beaten or driven as such. I was taken out of the yard. And I was put on a table, nude. My body, at present, have cigar burns, cigarette burns, all over it. My tepsicles, at times, bother me now from cigarette butts, sticks, rifles, laying on the table with my head looking up at the catwalk being spit on, hot shells thrown on my body. I tried to cover up with my pillow. Can you imagine 250 pounds getting under a pillow? State troopers and police came by and said, Nigga, get out from under that pillow. We wanted you to have a cover. We would give you one. 
You're going to die in the morning, nigga, so it don't make no difference. Nowhere, whether you freeze or we kill you. Nigga, black power, huh? Black power, huh? That's all was said to me while I was in that room. Trying to make me be the animal that he is to reverse the victim to the criminal, the criminal to the victim. What happened after Attica, which was that you have this horrendous event where 43 people were killed, where 150 were shot, and where 1,289 were tortured. And the state then spent the next 30 years trying to cover it up. The story of that, of course, is unbelievable. They took bulldozers and they bulldozed the evidence in the yard which is all the casings and the shotguns and all of the evidence of their murders. They never noted who got one gun. They didn't follow any of the procedures which you're supposed to when you're about to use deadly force, right? Because they didn't want to. All they wanted is for these people to be blown away. And that's what happened. They got blown away. So the first thing that had to be done was to defend the prisoners. There were 60 prisoners uh, charged with over 1,400 felony counts. So lawyers came from all across the country to Seneca Brothers Legal Defense and essentially put on a coordinated defense to stop the criminal charges. There was a big political movement that worked with the lawyers who said jail the real criminals, indict Rockefeller, and drop all the charges. They spent $158 million prosecuting 62 inmates on 42 indictments, the largest set of indictments in the history of the United States. And that took place from 1971 until 1976. And after many years of struggle, we were able to get all the charges dropped, but a few, um, and there were clemency given to the few that were convicted. So after we fought the indictments, then we decided we needed to file a civil suit. And in 1974, we filed a civil suit asking the state of New York to pay us money for the shooting, the murders, and the torture. And it took us essentially 20 years to begin to tell those stories in court. There was just a tremendous amount of delays caused by the state. The state hired private lawyers who were paid millions of dollars. And after 20 years, we were able to get the case to trial in 91 and 92. And after a five-month trial in which many of the brothers testified, in which um, National Guard who came in to uh, help with the medical care testified, doctors testified, even one or two state police testified, and some correctional guards testified, a jury of people from Buffalo all agreed that the assault itself inflicted cruel and unusual punishment as well as the reprisals after the assault. So we were in a catch-22 because the real issue was always whether what happened to them, which was so horrendous, transcended who they were, a bunch of rebellious third world convicts. And in front of regular people, just like us in Buffalo, racist, yes, it was, yes. That became a big thing. If a jury in Buffalo can have that kind of education and knowledge about who was wrong and who was right because the people in the community really, really, really upheld the law. And so the case went up on appeal and in what is easily one of the most dishonest decisions that had ever been written, the Court of Appeal reversed all of our verdicts. What we had was a class action and so we were able to file one suit for everybody who was in D-Yard at the time the shooting started. 
what the appellate court said was that it was not an appropriate case for a class action and that we would have to do each case individually. So what that meant, we would have to do 1,286 cases rather than one. And after 26 years, 29 or however many years ago, we just did not have the ability to do that, right? And so therefore, they forced us to take $12 million, right? Which was an inadequate settlement, but the largest settlement in the history of the American prison movement, but still not justice by any means. Three juries then found, after hearing the evidence, that there were violations of human rights and constitutional rights, but it was the judicial system, the courts, the men who decide the law, which prevented us from getting justice, essentially. It was not the people who heard the evidence. As long as you take a man, a person, a woman, and treat him as a beast, you're going to always have a problem in these concentration camps. Because what is happening in these institutions is the most cruel and unhuman punishment and treatment that any person can be exposed to. We are men. We are not beasts and we do not intend to be beaten or driven as such. People must know we are dying. We are being murdered every day. That is what's happening in here in all the articles over the world. The powers that be knew exactly what they were doing. They knew what weapons they were using. They knew what police force were they doing. They wanted that scorching. They could have taken over that yard without a shot, but they didn't want that. They wanted all that carnage, so everybody will see what happens when you rebel. What has happened here is but the sound for the fury of those who are oppressed. Oppressed people people without power can make a difference. They were able to get the eyes of the world to look at the prison system and to look at Attica. They sacrificed in many cases their lives to do it, but you never give up and you continue to fight and you continue to try and expose injustice and make sure that human rights violators can never rest easy. I see his death for the people in the street. I see, wake up. Stop hiding, because the same thing is happening to me is happening to you. And deal, petition, rallies, let the people, let the governor, let the president and people that in a position to do something about this know how you feel about your sons and your daughters that's incarcerated. Other than that, wake up, because nothing comes to a sleeper but a dream. been listening to a special program from the Freedom Archives on the 30th anniversary of the Attica Prison Rebellion. Special thanks to Max Smith and Attica attorneys Elizabeth Fink and Michael Deutsch. The program was produced by Lincoln Bergman, Anita Johnson, Andrea Lessler, and Claude Marks. A contribution from the Robeson Foundation made this program possible. You can contact the Freedom Archives at 415-863-9977 or on the web at freedomarchives.org. This is Rhonda Romero. Thanks for listening. Thank you.